Welcome to episode 84 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I am your host, Rose Griffin. And today we're talking about naturalistic communication training. I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Cindy Gavarter. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Speech and Hearing Sciences at the University of New Mexico. And she has such an amazing background in early childhood, special education. She's a BCBAD, just a wealth of information. And we talk about working on communication within natural environments. And we talk about an embedded approach. We talk about environmental arrangements. We talk about, can you do this one-to-one in a diet and a group? And she has been in the trenches and continues to be. And so she has some real-world opportunities that you can use tomorrow in your next sessions. We also talk about data collection because, you know, we always have to talk about data data collection. Um, and if you're working in a area where you are collaborating with other professionals and helping younger autistic learners, this is a great one. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks so much for joining us on episode 84 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have a great show for you today. We have with us Dr. Cindy Gavarter. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. Hi, thank you for having me. I look forward to it. So can you tell us a little bit about you? We were just chatting before I pressed record that um, Nakia Dower, who is a fellow SLP BCBA, um, has has been a good connector for me. And she was like, you should have Cindy on. She's doing such great work. Um, and, and we were just talking. We have, I think, been at some ASHA conferences together uh, pre-pandemic. Those, those were the days, right? <laughs> um, and um, But for those that are new to you, can you tell us a little bit about you and your work and how you got into the field? Sure. Um, So my background, um, I teach at the University of New Mexico in our speech and hearing sciences program, but my background is actually as a special education teacher and then a BCBA as well. Um, So I got into the field kind of an accident when I was 14. Um, My mom was one of those, you've got to do something for the summer. And I was sick of going to day camp. Um, And she happened to have a friend who was an SLP actually, and um, worked in a summer program for kids with a wide range of um, disabilities. Um, So I started volunteering in that program when I was 14, pretty much fell in love with it. Remember early on the first autistic children I was working with. Um, and then wound up, you know, from that volunteering in our extended school program, becoming a paraprofessional in the summers. Um, so I got my master's in special ed and, um, I taught in New York city for several years, um, a school that I was working out there, there was a BCBA who encouraged me to, um, pursue my BCBA as well. So did that and then went and got my PhD in early childhood special education that, um, UT Austin. Um, and that's kind of where I started also working in early intervention and getting in the homes and really kind of becoming interested more um, kind of in the naturalistic side when you're you really kind of are working with those young kids and you've mm-hmm. got the opportunity to be in the home. 
Um, so yeah, I'm now at UNM and I research both naturalistic communication strategies, interventions working with parents, collaboration between different fields. And then my other big area is AAC um, and looking at um, intervention and assessment approaches that really help us individualize the process for kids with autism. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. When I was reading over your bio, so UT, I lived in Austin for three years. Um, uh-huh. It was really neat. Me and my husband got married up here in Ohio. That's where I'm at now. And then we lived in uh, Austin for three years. And I worked in Leander ISD, which is this huge school district. Um, it's just like 35 schools. And it was so cool. Like once a month, I would go and I would do a presentation about autism, about ABA, and I'd visit people on their campuses. It's almost like what I do now in my business at ABA Speech. It's like really neat, but now online, you know, um, mm-hmm. and my BCBA supervisor was Kelly Rich. I don't know if you know her, but she owns Central Texas Autism Center. So, oh, yeah. I yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. C-TAC. Yeah. So, yep. I know okay. a bunch of people who are. Okay. C-TAC That's now. yeah. Small world. Yep. <laughs> okay. I just had yep. her on the podcast too, to talk about behavior oh, and cool. things like that. So small world. Oh my goodness. That is so funny. Um, now I'm excited to have you on like what a wealth of information and, and so amazing that I love obviously that, you know, you're, you're a collaborator and, you know, bringing yeah. the fields together because if you spend any time on Instagram or online, um, which you probably don't have time for, but I have an online business. So I log a lot of time on there. Um, there's, you know, such a big divide um, in the field. So just getting people working together, I think is so very, um, so very important. So I know today what we're going to talk about is naturalistic communication training, which I think is really, really great. Um, can you share with us just a working definition of what we mean when we use that term? Yeah, so it's a complex term, right? Because you're coming from different um, potential theoretical backgrounds, developmental approaches, behavioral approaches. So there's different definitions if you're talking about NDBIs, which are naturalistic developmental behavior interventions versus more developmental approaches. I think as kind of a broad definition, I like to think of it as anytime you're using evidence-based language intervention strategies, but you're embedding them within the context of everyday routines, preferred activities, things like play or in school, maybe it's music time or an art craft um, in the home. It might be storybook time or your bed bed routine, um, things out in the community. So it's just taking all of those evidence-based strategies. We know like things like um, responsive interaction strategies or prompts or time delay, and we're taking them and now embedding them within this naturalistic activity. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's really great. Um, so I'm wondering too, so in my um, private practice, I see younger students. So sometimes mm-hmm. school age, but sometimes younger too. Um, I'm wondering what type of assessment you like to use or, you know, what is your, how do you get a baseline for, you know, does this child need therapy? I mean, and oftentimes when they're itty bitty, you know, it's like, well, they're not yet speaking or, you know, they have a diagnosis of autism and um, we know that we want to support their communication. But what are some of your preferred assessments um, when you're helping students? Sure. So one of the ones I really like, especially when you are talking about those kids who have minimal vocal speech, um, just the communication matrix to me is a really great start. Mm -hmm. Um, One, because it's it's a way that you can start getting the parents engaged and talking with the parents about what communication the child is already using. And you're starting to build an understanding of different communication functions, functions and purposes of language. 
um, and it's you know freely available. Um, so I think there's a lot of benefits to starting with that. Um, I do like some of the more specific autism ones as well. So the VB map to me is definitely one where you can pull out and have those components that are really kind of focused on um, kids with autism. So things like joint and attention that are built within there. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, sometimes, and again, you don't have to necessarily be following the entire curriculum, but some of the programs, the NDBI curriculum programs. So for example, Early Start Denver model, yeah. even if you're not following their entire program, they have a curriculum checklist um, that I've used as an assessment that again, it's very open in the sense of you can do a parent report and follow that up with some naturalistic observation. Um, but the skills that are listed out in there are really focused again on the, what we know about children with autism. Um, so those are some of the ones. And sometimes too, it's just then combined with some, you know, language sampling, naturalistic, mm-hmm. getting involved in whatever, you know, you talk to the parents, you determine what are preferred routines and you start playing and start, you know, noting and saying, what is this child saying to me? Right. What are they doing? What are they not doing? Yeah. I Okay, good. I like those answers because those are ones that I've all talked about. We just did a blog post about the communication matrix, which I found out about. I was a school-based therapist. I actually just retired. I was doing that for about 20 years, but um, I love the communication matrix. But I had a student that was school-age that I used that with. It was the first time I had ever learned about it. And it's just such a, a nice tool because I think sometimes... And I do a lot of presenting about the VB map and I love Dr. Sarnberg's work. and um, But I think sometimes for speech therapists, if you're not in an ABA setting, or if you're not in a classroom where the teacher is very well versed in ABA, I think the VB map seems really uh, overwhelming. And so I've started to talk about things like the communication matrix. There's also something called the functional communication profile. Um, but I also love the Early Start Denver model. I have this five-hour ASHA-approved course called Start Communicating Today. And we talk about the VB map, we talk about language sampling, and we talk about Early Start Denver model. Because I think it's just hard for people sometimes to know where do we start in therapy when it seems like we need to work on everything. And then couple that with parents that are very sometimes nervous and they think that we need to talk, start work on talking immediately. And we we as providers know that there's like joint attention and all these like amazing things that we need to work on first, this connection before communication. Um, So that parent coaching I have found in my private practice, because I see people in their homes is is such a big piece of it, which I know we'll we'll probably touch on. Um, So if we're setting up this intervention, you know, using a more naturalistic approach, you know, what, what would that look like? I know that's a very general question, but I know some people might think, especially, you know, um, people might think, oh, well, if you're using ABA to work on communication, you must be working at a table, which we know that's not true. But (laughs) And and not to say that the table is the worst thing in the world for when it's appropriate, but can you talk to us a little bit about what a naturalistic intervention um, might look like? Sure. So it definitely starts off with, you know, we just talked about those assessments and those assessments um, are, you know, looking at the skills, but we also want to assess and figure out what are the routines we want to start with, right? So oftentimes, again, that's doing interviews with stakeholders, families, teachers, um, and figuring out activities, one, that can include preferred activities that are motivating, um, to present lots of opportunities, right? Where you can, you want to select an activity where there are potential um, um, opportunities to get lots of trials and experiences with different um, language goals. 
Um, you also want things that are priority for that. Again, if you're working in the home for the family, um, you don't want to come in again, thinking about cultural sensitivity and say like, let's do this type of play activity. And that's not actually what's typical for that family, right? So understanding, you know, what those routines are is the starting point. And then as you build those routines, you're looking back to your assessments and saying, okay, well, here's our, um, these are the skills and the goals we've selected collaboratively. Um, and then it's kind of like a mapping out process, right? Of saying, here's these goals. Oh, these goals work really well during story time, right? But also we can address these similar goals um, during an art activity, right? And so sometimes I use kind of like an activity matrix of planning out and saying, here's the possible different activities, preferred um, routines, and then here's the skills and goals we can work on in that context. Mm -hmm. um, so that planning, I think, is really important. People think sometimes naturalistic intervention is like, just go in and play with the child, which <laughs> sometimes, you know, you look out and you get yeah. some good goals. But that planning ahead of, okay, he's not interested in Mr. Potato Head today, right. but he does want to play with blocks. Great. I'm going to follow the child's lead, but I have a plan of this. These are the skills I can work on with this activity. And these are the skills I can work on with this one. And then it just comes down to, yeah, embedding those strategies with naturalistic communication. It's a lot about um, environmental arrangements, setting up an environment in ways to encourage communication. Another term for that, sometimes we think of communication temptations, mm -hmm. um, following the child's lead as well, but making sure there's some shared control there. Um, and then, yeah, starting to embed all of the strategies we already know of our prompt hierarchies, those more developmental approaches of expansions and extensions, mm -hmm. um, and then just continuing to make sure that that activity is rewarding and motivating for, for the child. And lastly, I, I didn't want to leave this part out. A huge part, obviously, of naturalistic is make sure we are including um, naturalistic communication partners. So that might involve coaching parents, um, that might involve peer-mediated intervention strategy, um, but obviously, the, you know, to be truly naturalistic, we want the communication partners that are in their everyday lives to be included. I love that. And I love the idea about how you're planning within the activity because I know that I have a client who is three. I talk about him a lot. He has autism. And I feel like I plan so so much for that session because I mean I've been there. I've been in a session where you're right, like so and so didn't like potato head. And then you're like, okay, now what? I mean, like I'm just like sweating profusely thinking about these <laughs> moments in my my therapeutic career because when I go to see these little guys, I'm like, and little girls that have autism, I'm like, I need to have and I have three kids. So we have like a finished basement. I have a lot of toys, but I too, like I have a data sheet that has my skills that I'm going to target. That's kind of how I do it. And in my mind, I'm planning the whole session. And I think over time, because I've been doing this 20 years, I can pivot. If, if so-and-so doesn't like that, or we're doing this a different way, I'm going to kind of go with the flow, but it's a little structured. And I really think that's such an art form that you really have to systematically plan. And I do 20 years later, I'm I'm thinking about this client. I'm not just winging it and hoping that what's in my therapy bag works because this isn't how it works <laughs> for certain clients. For some clients, if they're working on the yeah. R sound and I have the world of R and it's a fourth grader and, you know, but that's not what this podcast is about. It's like you really <laughs> need to have all your ducks in a row and you have to be planned because you never know what's going to happen during the session. And I think over time, you know, you start to feel more comfortable. Sometimes parents will say, well, how did you know to do that? And I'm like, 
you know, I've been doing this 20 years. Like I love autism and helping autistic learners. So it's trying to become second nature, but you can't just wing it is what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> so these strategies, so, you know, I am formerly a school-based therapist and these strategies, I'm wondering, it sounds like it's more one-to-one. Would you say that that's fair, that this is more one-to-one or can you do it in a diet and a small group or what, what do you think? Yeah. So it can be. So again, my background too, um, I've yeah. done early and there's certainly, it is easier to have that focus in the home, working one-on-one with a child and parent coaching. Um, but as a preschool teacher, I've definitely also embedded it in small groups and dyads. Um, so for example, you know, thinking back long time ago to my preschool days, um, but, you know, just working on um, simple peer interactions, right? So you might have two kids who maybe have similar goals or very different goals where one is working on responding or one is working on simple requesting versus the other one, you know, is then working on more complex social interactions with that peer. Um, so a, a lot of things I've done is, yeah, kind of pairing pair peers based upon here's some skills that could complement each other, but also hugely important pairing peers based upon preferred interests. So you, again, can really embed the learning within a naturalistic opportunity that they're both interested in. Um, so sometimes that type of dyad approach, but then also just thinking about in a typical like preschool setting, for example, um, circle time art activities, right? Mm -hmm. Again, thinking back to that planning, if you think of kind of like a matrix, now what it looks like instead of is like, let's say you have art and you say, you know, um, this child is working on um, sharing with peers, right? Mm -hmm. This child is working on commenting about, you know, his art project. And Mm -hmm. this other child is working on requesting, you know, the scissors and the markers and the crayons, right? So you're thinking through the same activity, but then planning out and saying, you know, what are the opportunities we have to embed for each child based upon their skills, right? And that can happen throughout the day in different play and kind of typical preschool activities. It's obviously a little harder as you move up to Mm -hmm. school age, but if you're talking about early childhood, there's definitely an... Um, activities that you can embed those within, but keeping in mind that that differentiation of how do you make sure that what you're doing is focusing on the needs of each individual child. Yeah. No, I love that. This activity planning sounds really like a helpful thing to try to wrap your your brain around, you know, that I, in my business, I've made a couple, we just shared one on Instagram. It was like, this is what you could do for a farm toy. And then it was ways that right. you can engage. Like these are maybe one step directions, or these are introverbals okay. or fill-ins. And this is how you could, you know, do it. And I think sometimes somebody said, oh, I'm going to print this off and put it in my center time because I worked in an all preschool building um, for a couple years. And there are so many different opportunities that are kind of semi-structured, you know, it's center time. Mm-hmm. And sure. then we would try to, to, for some of the autistic classrooms, we would try to make that particular center more a little more structured and maybe be a time that we could give, just like you said, opportunities to work on some goals in a naturalistic way. I love that. Mm-hmm. Really cool. Um, so do you have any recommendations, as I'm always thinking about data, like any good BCBA <laughs> would be thinking about, uh, wh- how do you like to take data on these more naturalistic um, opportunities? I know sometimes I worked in an ABA center one day a week for most of my career until I started my business. And I knew that it was just, this is how it always would go. I would set up some type of naturalistic, whether it was working with an older student doing a vocational activity or something with a younger student. And if it wasn't at the table, if it wasn't, you know, discrete trial, it's really hard to get other staff members to take data 
on something mm-hmm. that was more natural because I just think it's it's a little bit harder. I think there's more training involved for for staff to understand that. I mean, I think sometimes as the provider, you have this vision of exactly what you want to happen and how you're going to take data. Um, so how do you take data? Because I think it can be a little tricky for people to wrap their brain around. Yeah, it certainly can. And part of that is, you know, with when you are doing a naturalistic approach, you don't want to interrupt the naturalistic sequence and be like, sorry, child, hold on. I can't draw it in this play because I'm trying to, right? So I think simplifying as much as possible and thinking of approaches that, you know, you're not necessarily taking trial by trial data, um, but you're thinking about, you know, maybe doing cold probes first or last. Um, I've done ones, I had a little boy that I worked with um, where we kind of set up like a rating system that kind of throughout the session, I would score them like a one through five where, you know, a one would be um, very few responses or, you know, 80 to hundred percent of the, uh, you know, responses were prompted and then kind of down the line to a five was, you know, high frequency of responding majority of the were, were independent. Right. And so it's a little, you know, less accurate. You're, you're yeah. kind of balancing that component there of right. it's my guesstimate based upon, mm-hmm. you know, what I, but it's, it's the data I'm using for myself. So there's no reason to like lie and say, Oh, he got a five today. Right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, so I, I felt like it, you know, for the most part, I was being pretty accurate with that. This is, and mm-hmm. I could see the progress and track it. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, using, symptom systems that again might sacrifice that specificity we get yeah. sometimes in doing trial by trial mm-hmm. but one that instead you know allow you to have some form of data collection but really focus on the interaction and make sure you're not losing that naturalistic component um i think that's you know probably the best approach yeah, I love that. I think it's just can be hard for people, you know, from a training perspective, uh it, it can be hard for people to understand that communication really that's powerful that's going to generalize into these you know you're using these everyday routines which i think is just so important and i think some t- people come to whether they're using aba or speech therapy they have an idea of what it needs to look like <laughs> that it needs to be sure. structured have you ever had parents um because i, I i'm just asking cuz i had an experience once where you know, I am a BCBA and I'm an SLP, but um, sometimes I say, I think I'm a little more of an SLP. Um, and, you know, I do like more of a play base. It is structured. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm taking data, you know, things like that. But this family had a young child who was not yet speaking. They were autistic. And the family was very worried and thought that all of the intervention needed to take place at the table or it wasn't a good intervention and they were extremely nervous. And so I did a lot of, because I'm older now, so I seasoned, I say, you know, so I feel comfortable saying like, well, you know, that's not really how, you know, I, I recommend that we do things. And this is kind of my vision and my plan. And this is why I'm doing these certain things. And we did a lot of coaching about joint attention and, and all those types of things. So have you ever had parents who were concerned about more of a naturalistic approach? Um, don't think so. I've kind of sometimes, uh, you know, like had the opposite where parents automatically think, oh, like we're starting to, you know, hear things and about ABA and assume like, right. and are actually surprised by, yeah, right. you know, we can do that. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say, you know, yeah, I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of a particular family that 
um, had that concern, but I would say like, there is an approach that, you know, for those types of parents thinking about, um, you know, there's kind of a range of what we would call like, you know, naturalistic. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, if you're going with a program that's like fully following the child's lead, right. That kind of leads very naturalistic. There is blended approaches. And when you think more of like an embedded Mm -hmm. approach with that, it can still be very structured where Mm -hmm. it is very much like, I'm going to get five trials or 10 trials of whatever this is. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's happening on the floor in this game. So I know, Mm -hmm. you know, we're working on um, colors that, you know, I'm specifically going to wait. And every time the child is asking for the block, they're going to have to say the color. And so I can still say, I'm going to get 10 trials of this. Right. Right. And you can talk to parents of like, here's the structure, like, here's the same, I would be working on this goal. I'm going to get the same number of opportunities, but this is going to be more motivating to the child and build, you know, one, just, you know, it's interesting. I've started using, even though behaviorists won't necessarily use these terms, like the battle of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I talk to parents of, you know, if we do that more structured approach, we're not teaching them to use that language because it's motivating within the actual context versus if we're using that naturalistic routine, right? They're, you know, saying red marker, blue block, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's the natural reinforcer in that context, right? right? Versus just labeling you know, a flashcard that says red triangle and <laughs> right. we're reinforcing them with something else. Right. Right. That don't build the interest and motivation. And they don't start understanding like, Oh, communication benefits me in my everyday routines. Yeah. You know, trying to point out the benefits of yeah. a naturalistic approach to families while also saying, here's how it's structured. We're right. not just playing randomly. We are right. focusing on these skills and we are going to get, repeated opportunities to practice these things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important because I've had parents ask me too, because oftentimes most of the students I'm working with are getting ABA and then I'm the speech therapist. That's kind of a supplement and seeing them as well is that, well, you know, so-and-so is doing so much in ABA and, you know, I use the VB map as an assessment too and love it. You know, when are they going to start using talking more kind of in conversation? And then I just kind of talk about what we're doing during our session. And what's so cool about that, seeing kids in their home, is that sometimes sibling, now that it's summer, siblings are home, you know, like I can use them. The parents are working from home. So I can, you know, they can see what we're doing and that it is a different approach. And I like that, that you're pointing that out, that, you know, you're working on communication in in the time and place that it's important. So sometimes it's hard to get that data point when you're doing manding or requesting at a table and you're like, okay, the target is blue ball or red ball or red triangle. You know what I mean? And then Uh what if you get an activity, you know, in my mind, that's a little more naturalistic. I'm thinking, okay, we're working on two word mans or two word requests. And so I have a variety of activities. You know, one day we did Thanksgiving and it was turkey. So it was different color feathers. And I brought that for a couple of weeks. And then the next week I, I brought bubbles. So it was blow bubbles. So it's still the same two word request. It's just that mm-hmm. the target is a little variable. And I think sometimes when you're working in programs that are so very structured, right. it can be hard to capture that data just because of the system of how you're capturing yeah. data. You know what I mean? Uh huh. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that goes back to the like being creative to, you know, what is your data that you're tracking? Are you tracking this very specific target or are you saying we're working on two word mans or? Right. Again, just thinking about, you know, yeah, you're working on turkey feathers. Well, if you want to work on colors, like 
the red feather and the yellow feather, you can take that same thing and say the red block, the yellow block, right? right? And so your target can still be specific in some way, yes. right? Where that you're going mm-hmm. in on two-word mans using color descriptors. Right. But exactly. you're gonna focus on generalization as well. And it's yeah. not always going to be the red block. Or, yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. I think it's good just to dialogue about it because some people just get so focused that they yep. see everything else as incorrect. And, right. you know, it seems like you have a, a a broader idea, you know, of what you should work on an intervention. <laughs> so I, I like that. Um, can you tell us a little bit when I was kind of researching what you've been up to? Um, tell yep. us a little bit about this project called Project Scenes. It sounds very interesting. Yeah. So um, at the beginning, we said we're talking about I'm interested in collaboration. Um, So this is a project. It is a grant funded project through the U.S. Department of Education, the Office of Special Ed Programs. Um, What it is, is um, over the course of five years, we're going to um, recruit and I've already started um, 20 um, graduate students at the University of New Mexico in both the special education department and our speech and hearing sciences department. Um, They are pretty much close to fully funded for their graduate program. And what they get then is more extensive training in um, autism and specifically naturalistic approaches um, and collaboration. So we do things, um, we're about to start actually this week, um, their first, uh, we're running a collaborative clinic um, where both the speech students and the special ed students will be working um, in kind of a mini summer preschool program. And we're gonna pull apart and do some parent training. Um, they'll take a full course in naturalistic intervention. They participate in our university's LEND program. So they get collaboration with OTs, PTs. Um, so the idea is one, they take, besides, they do take additional courses in autism. So having a stronger knowledge of autism, but really then focusing on building that training in terms of collaboration in working with families and working with other professionals, and then focusing a lot on um, those more naturalistic approaches. Um, so we've recruited our first two cohorts. Um, the first one is in their first year and the next one will start next year. And we'll be recruiting for um, one more cohort of students um, to start in fall of 2023. I love that. That's so amazing because it's just so what you do in the real world. And I can tell you, having having got my master's in 2003, I didn't do anything like what you just described. So it sounds really nice because once you get into the real world, you're like, oh, I'm not practicing in this little bubble with only my goals and what I say matters. Because I always have this line that what happens in the therapy room does not stay in the therapy room. You know what I mean? Because, you know, oftentimes I don't even see any students in my actual office, you know, unless it's stuttering or something like that. It really just needs to be out in the world for younger students, older students. So that sounds amazing. Um, If people have information or questions um, for you, where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah. So I'm pretty sure we sent along the links that um, um, you can include that there's a link just to our UNM speech and hearing sciences program. And I have faculty page on there. Um, as well as there's a link to our project scene site that gives a little bit more information specifically about that program. Um, but then we also do have an Instagram, uh, UNM Autism Lab on Instagram. Um, so any of those ways um, or feel free. I usually will respond to emails if people have a, sometimes people reach out and ask for, you know, a particular research study or things like that. Um, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to have you on. Thank you. I enjoyed it. 
Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.